Okay, hello and welcome back once again to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. It is, as ever, me, Peter Simpson, with Jamie Dunn. Hello. Uh, Lewis Robertson. Hello. And Anahi Berries. Hello. So, we're having a lovely time. Uh, we've done the classic Cine Skinny prep of an incredibly long and incredibly hot walk through town. So that's been great fun because we're back at Upload Studios in Leith. Um, uploadstudios.co.uk. They're very nice. The studio is blessedly air-conditioned. We've got lovely microphones. Everyone's happy. Everyone yes. is happy. Everyone's happy. We're all we a bit promise. knackered. <laughs> For various reasons, I, uh, when we get onto what we're talking about later, can explain why if I just conk out at any point. There is a <laughs> legitimate reason. Um, but yeah. You're the host. How are we going to cope? I'm sure you'll be fine. I listened to that one when I was on holiday. It all went, all went well. Oh, thanks, Peter. That's all right. <laughs> Um, so yeah, today we are mainly going to be talking about Edinburgh International Film Festival because it is back with a vengeance. So we're going to do a preview of some stuff from the programme. We've all been off watching various things and we're going to give you a run through of those um, ahead of the festival starting on the 12th of August. 12th yes. of August. Yes. yes. Starts on the 12th of August. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Positive start. When you see we have been prepped. That is... Uh... <laughs> It's just very warm. Um, so yeah, we're going to do some stuff on EIFF. Um, and before we start, I'm going to plug the EIFF adjacent live recording of the Cine Skinny on the 15th of August at Codebase. A live edition of the podcast, interviews, chat, patter, free gin, uh, the skinny.co.uk slash tickets. And you can find more details and get your tickets. It'll be a lovely time. We'll all have... Uh, we'll all have sat down for longer before we start talking, so maybe be less breathless and sweaty from me. Um, <laughs> but before we get onto EIFF, as is custom, uh, Jamie, have you been watching anything particularly good recently that you would like to talk about now? Uh, I have. I uh, recently went to Cambridge for the first time, so I wanted to check out the Merchant and Ivory film uh, Morris. Well, I always thought it was Maurice, but then I watched. I the still film. say Maurice in my head. Uh, yeah, because it is Maurice. Is the thing actually, even though it's not. Well, that they, word is Maurice. Well, they all call him Morris in the film. Yeah, I know, but that's so, wrong. Anyway, <laughs> Maurice Morris, tomato, tomato, I don't know. Um, but yeah, for some reason, it's one of the big Merchant and Ivory films I hadn't seen. Um, yeah, so I thought it was a perfect time to watch it. It's as great um, as I've heard. It's really sexy and tender. Um, it's like, a, yeah, it's a kind of love affair between Jane White Wiley character set just before um, in Cambridge Uni, just before World War One. And it's about this kind of love affair that starts between a student and uh, his best friend, who's played by Hugh Grant. Um, and this being Edwardian England, you know, having a same-sex relationship isn't possible. So it's a really kind of tragic love story. But what makes it even better, actually, it's a lovely film, but when you think of it in context of when it was made, so it was made right in the kind of heart of the AIDS crisis. So it's this kind of defiant kind of celebration of gay love just when, you know, the whole of the UK was turning against gay people and being sort of horrible. Um, and you also got... It's even more moving because, you know, uh, I, uh, James Ivory and Ishmael Merchant, um, their own relationship was kind of hidden because Merchant's family was like super religious. And yeah, so it's like, so yeah. Were they together? Yeah, together yeah. Together? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh that's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah. That's so romantic. Shagging it <laughs> But like, uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So they had to keep it secret. I was kind of like kind of open secret, but basically they couldn't be public about it because uh, Merchant's family was like, wouldn't, it wouldn't approve. Basically, so yeah, really lovely to think of them making this sort of sweet, tender, like gay romance in the middle of all of that. And it just made me kind of think maybe I should go back and watch the Merchant Ivory films because I did watch them all, all the kind of big ones when I was younger. Mm. Um, and I kind of did think they were a bit stuffy and slow. But then I think maybe that's because I was like a like 14-year-old twit who liked Van Damme movies. So, hey, let's not speak ill of Jean-Claude Van Damme, all right? <laughs> On this podcast, we embrace all types of films, whether they are punting around in Cambridge or kicking a man really hard in the head. Exactly. The only two kinds of films. So what was it? I actually gave me an idea for a future podcast. I think we should do, uh, somewhere down the line, we should do something about how our tastes have changed as we get older and how like films we didn't appreciate when we were younger we now like and films we think uh, were yeah. amazing when we were younger we now mm. think are absolute codswalk. So, but yeah. And also Maurice, Morris, whatever you want to call it, is really good. So head it's out. It's so it. lovely. It's yeah, it's a beautiful film. 
and that future podcast does sound like a good plan, I will now turn to the youngest member of the team <laughs> who possibly has had less time for their tastes to change and ask <laughs> Lewis, what have you been watching recently? Uh, recently, I've been watching possibly the complete opposite of a very sweet and tender gay love story, a psychosexual horror film, uh, Images by Robert Robert Altman oh, yeah. from 1972, uh, which I enjoyed. It's a really strong atmosphere. It's like a little bit not great feminist-wise because it's all about her, like she's haunted by the ghosts of these sexual partners that she's had and it very much sort of stigmatises and shames the se her sexuality as a character. But... Um, it's given me the creeps more than anything else I've seen in a long time, so at least there's that. And um, it's because it's about a a, a female, um, like she's a children's book author, like a fantasy book author. So having like read a lot of Anne McCaffrey or Terry Brooks or Ursula Le Guin growing up, the narration where she actually does little chapters from this fictional book throughout, that's really fun. That's really cool. If you like children's fantasy, that's a nice little, uh, nice little piece of fun in an otherwise creepy and demoralizing film the handshake meme between people who like children's fantasy and people who would go big for the psychosexual <laughs> horror film it's actually not as narrow as you it's not that. it's <laughs> they're two big hands yeah. <laughs> <laughs> together um we should also do an altman podcast one day because he in the 70s like was just actually that's one of the films i don't like of the 70s but otherwise they're all it's the only horror that he ever did i mean he just changed genre every single time didn't yeah. he yeah, he'd do a western, yeah. a comedy, a detective movie. He'd just like move around. So, um, before Jamie comes up with any more ideas for future episodes <laughs> of the podcast, <laughs> um, Annie, do you have anything you want to talk about just now, or should we move on to the EIFF? Oh, that feels like a lot of pressure both ways. Somehow, <laughs> um, so I so Sight and Sound are doing not to talk about other magazines, but they're redoing their like decades. Every decade, they do a poll of like the best films ever. And they're redoing it now. So I've been going back to like some of the films that were like in the top whatever last time, which I realized I hadn't seen like so many of them. Um, the canon, as some would call it. So I watched um, Abbas Kiarostami's Close Up, which was really lovely and sad, like really sad, but very beautiful. Um, and then I watched half of La Talente yesterday. And then I had to do the Skinny's newsletter. <laughs> so then I switched to Stranger Things. So. Nice. That's been me. <laughs> Good stuff. And the only, it turns out from looking at my letterbox, uh, which I use to like keep track of what I've been watching, the only film I have watched since the last podcast is the Bob's Burgers movie, which I didn't particularly like. It wasn't very interesting. And they did the really annoying thing where if you have an animated TV show, you show that it is a film by doing like 3D rotoscope style animation jiggery pokery and also there was so much shadow it's so it's so dramatically lit it's very yeah. i liked it personally but yeah. like i did get i started watching it's like it feels so weird it feels like i don't know someone else is animating it yeah it's really i yeah i thought it was all right but the problem was i had literally just watched my favorite episode of bob's burgers the day before that's the thing is that it feels like an episode a really long episode which can be good for like animated sitcoms into television shows but uh, into films rather but like there are episodes that are better than the movie. Yes. We could do a whole episode on adaptations of TV series oh into films. But let's <laughs> not. We could do a whole episode on Bob's Burgers. We could do a whole episode where we just come up with different ideas for episodes of the podcast. But let's not, and let's move on. To Edinburgh International Film Festival, which is back. It has moved back to August, and we have, are going to have a chat about some of the films, but... Should probably talk about how it's changed a lot actually it seems to be taking a slightly different position than it has in the past so jamie as the film editor of the magazine what's your assessment of eiff kel s le vibe <laughs> de le festival Edinburgh? oh my god <laughs> 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 I'm very tired, all right? Um, well, I guess I didn't really start covering it as press until about 2010. So I didn't sort of see the shift, but I did attend it as a punter um, before then. So it, it, if you don't know, it moved back um, from 
being in the fringe uh, in sort of 2008 and moved to July. So I've experienced it very differently. So it's going to be so different um, this year having it during um, the main festival. Um, but it's not just that. That's not the only move. They've sort of changed the whole structure of the programme, which is quite interesting. Um, before it used to have these kind of, I guess, quite sort of stuffy strands so like British cinema or world cinema everything's kind of categorised by by geography which is a kind of weird way to think about movies so it's now um, sort of split up into this kind of more kind of vibey architecture where you've got kind of uh, strands like Heartbreakers which seems to be kind of more emotional movies or Postcards from the Edge which is where the, all the kind of weirdo experimental movies are so I kind of like that concept also like how they've taken documentary and experimental film and sort of mixed it in with the main programme so it's not as if they're kind of putting them off in the ghetto anymore. Um, and there's kind of no hierarchy saying that narrative fiction is superior to documentary or superior to experimental film, which is really cool. Um, and I guess the other big difference is it's like the programme seems to be more focused than ever on kind of newer filmmakers. Um, I don't know if you guys think this, but it seems like the direction they're moving in is they're more interesting kind of first and second time filmmakers maybe. Um, there's fewer of the kind of big splashy kind of festival films on the programme so it's, a, it's, a, it's the kind of festival basically where you have to just dive in I think and maybe trust the curators a bit more um, and sort of take a punt on things a bit more which which is the vibe I'm getting from it I don't know what your first impressions are Yeah I remember when like the programme first came out and it was a bit like oh like quite surprising because you just hadn't heard of really either any of the films or any of the filmmakers and that felt even quite different from last year where it had like you know the Nick Cage vehicle and Annette and things like that but I think they've done a very smart thing by sort of bookending it with two films that people are very very excited to see so it's After Sun and After Yang which I also think is really cute they sound the same I know that's not on purpose but I just think it's nice um and then everything in the middle is yeah like you say potentially stuff that you haven't heard of before but every description I read, I'm actually like, oh my God, that sounds sick. Like it sounds so good. And I think having that sort of festival in Edinburgh, cause obviously Glasgow, especially this year did a really, really good job of bringing in all of the films you've been hearing about out of like London and like Cannes and Venice and all those and kind of bringing them there. And so I think that's doing that role in kind of the Scottish landscape and that's really important. But then it feels like, yeah, Edinburgh rather than just doing that again is now offering a type of like window into filmmaking that otherwise you wouldn't have, which is just really nice. I think festivals should do like distinct things in some ways. Um, and it feels like it's doing that, which is cool. It kind of reminds me a bit more of something like Rotterdam, where mm, the focus mm -hmm. is very much kind of emerging filmmakers, emerging yeah. voices, or even something like the kind of panorama and forums in Berlin, which are much more focused on kind of political films, films with like a social conscience, yeah. or films that are just really experimental. So. Yeah, it seems that's, and that's, I think, where they've pulled on. Uh, you know, a lot of the programmers come from, like, they've dug into the Rotterdam program or dug into mm. the forum and got stuff from there. So, yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, I, I think the same pretty much. It seems a little more discovery-based, really, for, for people who might, you know, otherwise have just sort of flocked to whatever big names or or, or, or what have you um, were showing because there's just such a varied thing now. I really like the categories. I think the categories all sound really interesting. There's none of them that I'm kind of writing off as, oh, you know, that's just where they're sort of like sequestering some of the less interesting films. Like I think all of them actually sound like they've got something good going on in them. And a thing about that as well is that they did this, um, what's it called, it's like kind of savor pass thing. And they announced this before the festival. It was like you could basically buy like 10 tickets for the price of eight. And at the time I was like, that's a weird thing to do because nobody knows what any of the films are. But actually it fits in with what they're trying to do in terms of making it be, they basically want people to have a couple of freebies in their back pocket so they can be like, that film sounds interesting, I'll go and see it. Mm. Rather than to be like, I want to see the new Pixar film when it's on at the festival theater and then i'll maybe go and see something because it's got someone i've heard of in it yeah and that feels quite festivally right like that's kind of how you do the fringe is you sort of hear about things and you go like at the last minute like you're kind of collecting things as the festival like wears on whereas i think often with film festivals there's a sense that like you go in and you know what you want to see and it feels quite like tick boxy sometimes and this feels more in line with the edinburgh festival vibe generally yeah. which is cute I think vibe is the right word. It feels like you can go along and say, I'm in the mood for mm. a big cry. 
So I'm going to come to Heartbreakers and find <laughs> Always. Or, or I'm in the mood to, like, you know, see a kind of sleazy, dirty, down and dirty movie. So you go to the kind of night moves also always. <laughs> yeah. So like I kinda that's a kinda nice way to program, especially if you don't have um sort of headline names where people know what they're getting. If mm. it's kind of more unknown filmmakers, you have to kind of give them a kind of yeah, a, a way to weigh in. And I think those kind of evocative titles and sort of programming it in that way is a good way to do it. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I will say, having said all of that, um the what do you call it opening film obviously is a big film oh, yeah. and um apparently paul mascal might be there which i'm very excited about also apparently few bridges might crumb because they're like together so not to be all like celebrity-ish about it but that is an exciting thought yeah they've changed it to make it more kind of like experimental and discovery based but also they will have some famous people yeah, yeah, yeah. who we can famous try and hot make people friends. that i fancy yeah. <laughs> i like because obviously um if, if Paul Mascal's here, we go to the opening party. Uh-huh. I kind of hope he turns up like in his shorts with his like little yeah, jeans yeah. and tins under his under his yeah. shoulder. His, what a sweet his, boy! His packet of <laughs> pronto cocktail crisps and just turns up, you know. Like the, yeah. the Cine Skinny's podcast. The Cine Skinny podcast has promised to you is that if we see Paul Mascal at any point during the Edinburgh Film Festival, <laughs> we will introduce ourselves. Oh, I am not making that promise. Are you insane? I'll do not it. Doing, yeah, I'll you do, do, do that. I'll do it. And then I'll introduce, Jamie and I'll his introduce like, you to him. <laughs> just drag me into this. This is my colleague, Anna Heat. Oh, she's running away. <laughs> what if we buy our mescal? I bet nobody's ever done that before. That would be a really good icebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've all been banned from the opening gala. None of us are going. <laughs> what better film to start with when talking about the EIFF program than a film about the kind of films that play at film festivals. So first up, we'll talk about Official Competition, which is by Spanish-Argentinian directing duo Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat. So the premise is that a wealthy kind of industrialist guy wants to secure his legacy, and his assistant says, oh, you could build a bridge. And he's like, ah, bridges aren't interesting. I want to finance some cinema. So he decides that he's going to bankroll an adaptation of this notoriously like difficult to understand no- uh, Nobel Prize winning novel. So he gets his kind of team together. He gets uh, Lola Cuevas, who's played by Penelope Cruz, who's this very kind of like unconventional director. Uh, Lola wants these two actors, um, very kind of noted theatrical thespian Ivan Torres, who's played by Oscar Martinez, and a big kind of Hollywood star played by Antonio Banderas, who's called Felix Rivero. And they, she uh, gets them together, and the film basically charts the kind of development of this film in increasingly absurd and bizarre circumstances. I should also note that real uh, Simpsons heads will recognize that the initial setup of the film is effectively the episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns wants to make a film to make himself look good. And he can't get Steven Spielberg, so he decides to get the closest equivalent to Mr. to Steven Spielberg that he can. And he tells him that he wants to make a film about how everyone loves Mr. Burns. And the director goes, oh, but Mr. Burns is no bueno. And then, <laughs> and then it's like, okay, well, sort that out. I'm not paying you not very much to not do this. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Um, so thing about official competition is it's quite a sparse film it's set in these like enormous modernist buildings but often with not very many people hanging about uh, and it's all about the kind of chalk and cheese character dynamic between these two actors which is sometimes a little bit on the nose like you know one of them has a lamborghini one of them drives a prius you'll never guess which one's which <laughs> um antonio banderas's character describes himself as a son of a bitch but a great actor and um, which is the whole of hollywood yep. <laughs> and then, all of them and then Oscar Martinez describes himself as uh, he says he demands to have like standard class travel when he goes on planes or trains because, quote, I hate being forced to have privileges, which, again, every mega thespian <laughs> you've ever seen. Um, they're both great. Penelope Cruz is amazing. Very kind of strange air playing this director with very particular methods and extremely shiny teeth. And for me, the thing about it is that for a film that's all about like acting and production, the props are one of the best things in this film. There's Penelope Cruz's character, the director, has this massive like shooting script that's filled with like Polaroids and cigarette ends and bits of hair just like sellotape to the pages. There's one enormous rock 
which has like a really key role in one of the scenes. <laughs> um, there was an industrial shredder and a bit where a couple of people get attached to each other with cling film. There was a scene where um, Ivan gives this kind of like really pretentious pretend Oscar speech when he thinks he's going to win an award, uh, but he does it holding a kettle in front of two different mirrors. And it's shot in a way where you can see him reacting to his own reaction to his speech. Um, and it's one of these kind of, it's like an a, like quite absurd kind of dark comedy, which just builds over time as things get increasingly bizarre and frenzied. And it's all about kind of vanity and one-upmanship. And crucially, ideally for a film festival, it's about being convinced that the film you're working on is the most important thing in the world and that your personal role in that film is the most important part of that film. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was very good fun. I think it was one of these ones, I think it was maybe you, Lewis, that said, described a comedy the other week as uh, the kind of comedy that doesn't have any big laughs in it. And there's an element of that, I think, Annie, you were saying before we came on, that it might be quite a good one to watch at a festival with an audience. Yeah, so this showed at Venice when I was there, but I didn't go because it showed as, like, official competition on the booking website because that's obviously its name. Um, but I thought they were talking about like the official competition of films at Venice. So I didn't book because <laughs> I got confused. So I never saw it, but all my friends that saw it, they really, really loved it. And they said like the energy in the room was incredible. Now, I think part of that energy is that film critics, there is nothing that like Hollywood loves more than films about itself. And there is nothing that film critics love more than films about films. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's all a little bit like that snake eating its own tail. So... I am curious what like a regular human people audience would make of this. Um, but I do think it would be the kind of thing that's like better in a room full of people that like lots of people are laughing. Cause it, for me, I smiled a lot in it, but I didn't have any proper like laugh out loud bits, I think, which is fine, which is fine. I did like this a lot. I did think um, she was great. Penelope Cruz was amazing. And I think she should do way more comedy because she's actually so good at it. Like she has this insane, like hennaed, permed, curly, wild hair. Um, and she's just dealing with these two men. She doesn't give a shit. And she's just like very, very funny. Um, and it does like this very clever thing. Peter, you were saying earlier, like that idea of, um, yeah, like the sparseness of it almost. And it's like quite theatrical, but it's like very obsessed with this idea so often you'll get like shots of people like looking at themselves in mirrors and the camera's kind of behind them or there's this one really weird shot where someone's surrounded by like a hundred microphones or like yeah screens and like sound like someone like the sound design mimics like how someone keeps like shutting their ears and not shutting their ears and so it's just very obsessed with the idea of like cinema as like an artificial space and as a re reality that can be manipulated and I think it does that in like a really clever granular way which i really really liked um yeah it has a great cast um i love antonio bandras have i told you that antonio bandras was like my sexual awakening <laughs> as no, a child go on. <laughs> i think you said that about multiple actors um spy kids or zorro zorro okay. zorro yeah, yeah yeah like from the age of about seven eight i have thought about zorro like most days <laughs> like it was a really really fundamental important formative part of my childhood um so I love him I I think actually am I meant to love him I think in his personal life he's maybe a bit whatever but I love like his presence his screen presence and like yeah he has a very uh special place in my formative horny feelings and he's great in this yeah so. he's very good in this and his characters are right little bastards yeah as well. yeah um yeah this felt the thing about this is it looks amazing because it's one of these ones where like the premise excuses a lot of the kind of weirdness around it. I know that this was a film that like the production was stopped at one point because of COVID. And really? they were making it in like March 2020. And the premise of it being a billionaire guy f like financing it means that they're filming, they're doing all the rehearsals at his like foundation building, which is this enormous like modernist building with all these really interesting, strange rooms. So it kind of, you you are excused a bit in the fact that like there's basically nobody in this enormous like mm. theater space but like that just gives it the a bit more tension because the, the two actors clearly hate each other like the characters do not get on but they're 
in all the space they could be, they have to be across a small table from each other, trying not to get splinters in each other's eyes, <laughs> or like trying not to slag off the other one too much. So yeah, it's a really like it's a funny, interesting, um, and yeah, kind of ideal film for a film festival setting because, like you say, it's a film about films, yeah. and people who love films love nothing more than a film about films. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's because it's about a film and about a film and it's got his two favourite actors, but I was getting Emotivar vibes. Is that any, anywhere close? Is that, or is that just me being like basic and thinking the Spanish that must be... No, oh. no, no. But I, I was thinking that as well, but it has like kind of in almost everything apart from its thematics. I think because Almodovar also does that thing of like things being like constructed and almost matter. Um, and then, yeah, obviously like the actors as well. But then it is just like funny in a way, like this kind of absurdist funny, making fun of itself. Whereas I think his films tend to be quite like earnest, even if they're like tangled and complicated. Um, I, I, I was curious just when you were talking about like how interesting all the shots were with all these mm. mirrors and microphones and stuff like that. So this fictional film adaptation, do, or do we see much of it? No, so it's it... like all rehearsals, right. almost all of the film. And so it's just them kind of practicing in mirrors or being like kind of practicing on a stage, like this weird little like acting exercise. Like you don't even see that much of them rehearsing the film. It's more like she's trying to teach them acting. And so there's this one great bit where he like literally says, what is it? He's like, good morning or something or hello. And she's like, again, again, <laughs> again. Again, I need to know you feel it. <laughs> Good morning can mean a hundred things. Yeah. Or something like that. And so it's like very much that kind I, of vibe. So like I was wondering if there was like a a real world to it and then the project they're working on. But is the entire thing just incredibly surreal? Is it like so sort of silly that it's not really It's not like entirely like Bicketian or anything like that like it does have you every now and then see them in the real world but it is just mostly like I think it's really interesting that it's a COVID film or partly a COVID film because it does have that sense of the way that COVID films tended to suddenly become a bit small scale in a way um like in terms of their setting and their yeah. so it kind of feels like that almost yeah and it's a film as well that is about kind of sequestering yourself off to do this great idea that you've had yeah and that's what like the fact that you don't actually see any of the you see it some of the end result but you don't see the actual film itself so you see kind of some of the outcomes of all these um rehearsals and weird trust exercises and bizarre what i would describe as strange motivational techniques each stranger than the last but yeah it, the way that it's structured means that there's a sense that they've gone off almost like in films when someone like goes off into the woods to discover something they've just gone off to an enormous modernist building somewhere in spain to discover that if you smash a chair really hard then it will just go into bits <laughs> <laughs> it is a good time yeah. like it is just yeah it is a fun time so official competition is on on the 13th saturday the 13th and friday the 19th of august at the omni center view um just at the top of leith walk it's probably quite good actually that it's on kind of two screenings fairly far apart because at least it means people have a chance to talk to each other about whether they liked it or not mm -hmm. but yeah i would i would recommend it yeah i would recommend it as yeah well. very good Okay, so next up is uh, Millie Lies Low, uh, which is a new film by Michelle Saville. Saville or Saville? Um, Saville, I guess. We will say Saville. So, Lewis... <laughs> yeah, why would that be Saville? I'm very tired. <laughs> um, so, Lewis and Jamie, you both watched Millie Lies Low. Lewis, do you want to talk us through a bit of the plot and a bit of background? You yeah. have a description of the film that we're about to talk about. Sure. Uh, so it's a film about Millie, who's played by uh, Anna Scotney. She is um, an, an aspirational New Zealander architecture postgraduate. And um, she's on her way to a, a big internship in New York City, kind of. It's established as, like, this is the, the big time. This is the dream. This is what her fellow students were really aspiring towards throughout their studies as well. Um, but slight spoiler though is the opening scene of the the film is that she has a panic attack on the plane and you know forces her way off and ruins her chances at making it in time for this internship so instead of sort of coming clean with 
all of the people in her life who are expecting her to go on this great big adventure, she decides to stay in New Zealand and uphold their expectations by, I think it's Wellington that it's set in. She stays there incognito and stages these social media posts uh, to give the illusion that she's made it, that she's she's living it up, she's living large in the Big Apple. She's, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's this jet-setting, you know, architecture whiz, when in fact she's kind of been crushed by the pressure of it. Um, if you've been, if you're like curious for a film that handles the topic of social media really well, this is a really good one. Um, it deals like it, it has this theme of her identity and her and the lack of identity, and uh, it, it's not gratuitous. It's not like heavily edited much in in how she uses social media. It really is just like a shot reverse shot of her looking at her phone typing something um her performance is really interesting she has this kind of absent look on her face you can tell in the same way that her character is kind of hiding from the harsh reality of what's happened that she's kind of withholding stuff from the camera uh but that kind of blankness it it, it really like pairs well with the fact that she's typing out these texts and deleting them and practicing texts and trying to seem as happy and amicable as possible when she's really not um she takes selfies at one point with the intention of photoshopping herself uh in front of these google image results of times square so she can post them on her instagram but she sort of summons this positive fun loving expression out of nowhere then the picture's taken and she just goes back to that blank face so her performance um anna scotney is really really good um and uh yeah there's just some general interesting statements that the film's making um i would say that it, like it's not asking a lot of questions but providing a lot of answers it's being quite authoritative with what it's saying uh we sort of connect with her new zealander heritage we meet her mum some of the um sort of traditions that she's accustomed to uh, the film says there that when you've lost everything else, when you've kind of stripped away your identity, what you have is what you were raised with. That reminded me a lot of Lady Bird, which I would probably say is the film that I can kind of see it being the most comparable to. If you'd like a film to kind of go in thinking, oh, well, I like this film, so I like this film. Lady Bird reminded me a lot of uh, Millie Lies Low, just in terms of like the complicated, dysfunctional mother-daughter relationship, but also the tone and you know that's probably the one thing that i would say could maybe do a little bit better on this film is that i feel like it doesn't have a strong emotional core i don't know maybe you disagree with me on that but i just sort of felt like you know yet like oh well is it a sort of farcical comedy well you know there's funny bits but like not really any huge ones and oh is it sad or is it ultimately hopeful and it's like it's got moments of both but again i feel like it never leaves you with like a really strong moment to hold on to to understand the the emotional core of the film the tone is quite funny because it it is a comedy and it's got that kind of very new zealand deadpan uh comedy so, so it's, yeah it's like it is the kind of humor i like but it's also you're right it's kind of downbeat as well and it ha it's shot in this kind of way where it's kind of greenish and it looks a bit like a david fincher serial killer film or something mm -hmm. like that i guess they're trying for a kind of realism but it does make it feel a bit menacing at times um but i think it's just a great film about how one stupid decision that you haven't thought through cascade into like a dozen other terrible decisions and what makes the decision, uh, millie's decision more worse i don't you mention that is she's like the poster girl for the city mm -hmm. like uh because she's got this award she's the one that's made it there's pictures of her all around and in those pictures she's been like made up to look different she's her hair's straighter maybe she looks a bit more kind of like i guess european looking she's she, they've got rid of her curly hair her mother says she didn't recognize her when she's doing it so it's like a, a girl who's not being herself you mm -hmm. know and we find out throughout the film that actually a, a lot of things in life aren't really from her her you know so there's like a great scene where she uh has to, for some reason she has to go back uh to her old dorm um and there's a party happening and it's that kind of weird thing of you you've left the country but your friends carry on as if you're not there so she's like wearing a uh crash uh what's it called a motorbike helmet and she's got a poncho on and she's like sneaked in, into the party and she can hear people talking about her and they're being a bit bitchy actually they're like saying oh, oh she's gonna get found out because actually she's it turns out she stole a lot of the ideas from her best friend and it's this idea of like it's a yeah it's a really kind of weird film because this is a girl who we shouldn't really like she's she's kind of lies to her friend she lies to her mother but she's also really likable i don't know there's something that i liked i liked how she was just one step ahead of 
her lie. She's always just trying to do one more thing to get, uh, you know, it involves like crazy things. She has to steal a rabbit at one point. She has to like break into like her old uh, university. Like she's just got, like she's just one scheme after another, you know, there's a, a section where she's like in a tent and the tent is leaking. It's just like she's, everything's going wrong, but she's just trying to like just patch it up and make it better. So it's kind of like a thriller in that way. It's kind of yeah. watching her trying to like, um, there's a kind of great uh, motif actually there's a it turns out that her parents were missionaries and they went to the philippines and they brought back with them this kind of filipino dance routine which mm -hmm. where they use bamboo and it turns out millie's really good at it it's where they do is they slap bamboo together and millie's and you have to dance to avoid getting hit and it turns out Mel, millie's really good at that but that's what she's doing throughout the whole film she's just avoiding being hit by the bamboo uh, <laughs> constantly she's just so that's kind of it's just fun watching a chancer it's, it, it reminds me a bit of um and it's been described a little bit as like uncut gems, but I think mm. it's a bit more like uh, the previous one, which I, f I actually forgot his name. Uncut what? gems, I would feel like kind of. It's not. I, I didn't feel like I was on the edge of my seat as much. You're not like nail biting, wondering whether or not she's going to get found out. Yeah. Is the thing. It's not some sort of like undercover. Like it. it I, I would say with her kind of batting back and forth as a character, where oh, you feel quite sorry for her, but then a picture begins to form and you realise that she's not great in some aspects, but then you get a little bit more sympathetic again. Again, I would kind of say that fits into the my feeling that it's not really asking questions, but just giving answers. This is the kind of person that this would happen to. This is the reason she's this way. Yeah. She's not necessarily acting particularly great. She's not necessarily acting super terribly, but oh, here's a conversation with her mother that lets you know why she is the way she is. This is what her mother's like to her, so this is, explains why she behaves this way. Yeah, it's an interesting film. I feel like the filmmaker almost punishes her a little bit. There's a, a, a moment where I think it maybe goes a bit too far and like she gets humiliated in like, the worst way possible. Um, and I always, I kind of feel like there's a kind of conservatism that sneaks in. Like the filmmaker's also saying like this, this girl shouldn't have tried as hard as she, uh, you shouldn't have achieved because what she does is she's cheated to achieve as well she's maybe not the greatest student but she's like copied a friend and she's got this role but it's almost saying like stay in your place almost which I th at the end which i didn't quite like but otherwise i thought it was a charming film i think i think part of that there is like um this is like a very small minor part of her character that develops over the film but obviously like i said the first scene is her having a panic attack on this plane and demanding to get off throughout most of the film she insists that wasn't a panic attack and that she doesn't have panic panic attacks and it's sort of like this where does that come from because it it, it you obviously did and she's denying it to near about everyone she speaks to um so it's this kind of like she's in denial but at the same time as we learn doesn't have a strong identity herself doesn't we don't know how seriously she defends the idea that she is this architecture whiz you know so i, I feel like there's a, a deeper character that's not really coming across that well and i think that might confuse the message a little bit yeah i mean what keeps it watchable is like the the, the actor is amazing i think she's so good like she it, is yeah she carries the whole film every scene is following her and yeah, I just really enjoyed her trying to get out of these scrapes. And that's why I kind of was a bit disappointed the film was like not a bit nicer to her. Mm -hmm. Like I think she does get punished a little bit. But it's definitely worth a watch if you just want to, like if you just want to see a really odd film about like all these strange twists and turns. You, I, I was always surprised at how much, how it kept going really. How, you know, she'd fix one problem, patch up one hole and then immediately something else would pop up and she had to take care of that. Like it does really like, keep you satisfied for pretty much the entire run runtime. Yeah. Good stuff. Sounds interesting. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. But we it were sounds great. We were both absolutely wrapped. <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> it's like watching a tennis match. Yeah. The back and forth. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. If you like Kiwi comedies, if you like downbeat weird Kiwi comedies, I think you'll like it. Uh, so Millie Lyslow is on on the 15th of August at The View at the Omni Center and it's on on the 18th of August at the Filmhouse on Lodian Road. So next up is a film that Anahit has picked out of the EIFF program, which is called My Small Land. Anahit, do you want to tell us what that's about? I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I can do that. Um, so My Small Land is about a um, teenage girl whose family originally comes from, um, who is Kurdish, um, from 
Kurdish Turkey, I think. Um, and they came over when she was still a child um, to Japan um, as refugees. Her mother has died and she has two younger siblings, both of whom don't really speak Kurdish. Like they're very much integrated into Japanese society. Um, and yeah, for her as well, uh, Japan is mostly all that she knows. And the film begins in this kind of very like everyday way, like she's going to school and she's with her friends and she's very much like navigating being torn between these two cultures, um, like her family and her father especially is really like wants them to still be connected to that Kurdish part of that identity. Um, but then what happens is her family's refugee status is rejected um, which is just so sick that that can happen after you've been living somewhere for decades. But that's kind of the point of the film. Um, and yeah, that kind of sense of limbo and being in between these two places increases. And she has to suddenly confront the ways in which she isn't made to belong in the place that she considers her home and has been her home for her entire life. Um, the reason I picked this was I was just so fascinated by the premise of it. Um, I don't think I have ever seen, and that might just be because, you know, I, I don't pretend to be like an expert on East Asian cinema at all. Um, and obviously what we get here in the West is probably not representative of everything that they make. Um, but I don't think I have ever seen a Japanese film that doesn't feature, like center on a Japanese or an East Asian person. And actually reading around like the reviews of this film and from like Japanese audiences, they were also like, this is so unusual. And so to have someone on screen speaking fluent Japanese, but is Kurdish, and to kind of have that like in-betweenness of identity somewhere that isn't focused on the West, which is I think often how we kind of get these narratives was just really fascinating. And I think just so important. Um, obviously we talk a lot in this country about like our own really fucked up refugee policies, but obviously these border policies exist everywhere. And I think Japan has a very, very bad track record of letting refugees in. Um, and so, yeah, it just feels like a very important film in so many ways. And it's also just beautiful. Like it's gorgeous. It's the debut film by the director, Emma Kawawada. Um, probably said that wrong, so I'm so sorry. Um, but she used to be assistant director with um, Kareda. And you can absolutely see the influence come through. It's very gentle, it's very compassionate, it's very like focused on the small intimacies of this family, um, like the food they eat, they kind of sit on the floor instead of um, around a table, which is so interesting because I think that's a Japanese custom, but it's also very much like a Middle Eastern thing. And so it's just very much this kind of meeting of things that is just so quiet and so everyday. Um, and yeah, I think what I love most about it is how good Kawawada is at showing that kind of sense of limbo, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of identity. So she does very clever things with language where they kind of shift from Turkish to Kurdish to um, Japanese throughout. And that sense of like, how are you making yourself understood to other people, these two younger siblings who barely speak any Kurdish at all. Um, and yeah, that sense of, I think it being Kurdish as well is so important because Saria doesn't really know how to identify herself. She kind of pretends that she's German a lot of the time. And I think a lot of it like comes down to in the film that she doesn't even know how to describe that you're from somewhere that isn't its own country. And so just there's so much going on. Like it's so clever with all of these layers. Um, Lina Arashi, who plays Saria, is so perfect. Like just such a beautiful face, just like so sweet. And so like everything is like very internal and you can just like read like the flickers on her face. Her relationship with her dad is really like wrenching. It just, I just felt it a lot. Um, yeah, it's just a really beautiful film. I would really recommend it. I just have not ever seen anything like it. Like it's so lovely. Um, did you watch it as well, Lewis? I did, yeah, yeah. I, I really liked it. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of went in with that same, oh, I've really not seen any Japanese cinema that deals with these kind of topics. I, it was to my understanding, you know, I'm not massively informed, but it was to my understanding that Japan is like very, um, they, they don't explore these topics in their media much and they can be quite anonymizing and isolating to outsiders. Um, and I, I would say that it's, if you're like me and those were your thoughts, go in and see this film because it will explore the topic in a way that I really didn't expect, which is that, you know, 
a lot of the characters that we meet along the way, say like um, the protagonist's teacher or um, the, the her boss at this convenience store, are really like affectionate and mm. and supportive people. Um, so I, I think I was maybe expecting like a lot more aggression from side characters, like a lot more direct, like dismissive uh, attitudes. But it's more about the 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 structures. That mm. they're in place, they're the more antagonistic force. So when that refugee status gets rejected, it feels more just like there's doors closing everywhere. And as we get bad news from the teachers and bosses, they're still really supportive and and recognize how bad this is, but there's nothing that they can do because it's quite an unfeeling social system. Um, so I think that that's like a great credit to to the script. It's like some great nuance there where we're not necessarily like you know i don't know i think that it's it's still highlighting that there's lots of consideration to outsiders here it's just that you know it, you're right it does have a really like fucked system for 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 refugees and asylum seekers um the the, the loss of privilege just doesn't feel as personal which is what I really liked. I, I liked the the protagonist and I, the, the relationship with the father as well. That was like, it, it's really well paced, a great sort of like, um, you kind of are aware there's some hesitance around the national identity with uh, Saria. Is it Saria? Yeah, Saria, the protagonist. Um, it's just that like, as time goes on, I don't know, I feel like the, the, the shoes may be like a little bit underused, but I wonder if that's because she's such a younger actor that maybe she wasn't thrown into very particularly emotional scenes. Um, but it winds up sort of suiting the director's Kawada's sensibilities in that you're right, it is more tender scenes. It's more like sort of um, quiet, contemplative scenes. She sits in silence with a lot of other characters as well. And mm. I think that's that's a big part of like the message this is sending, which is that it's maybe even if these conversations aren't necessarily happening when they should be, that there is still like great care that we can afford outsiders. So again, I just think there's lots of really interesting ideas. I think it's well worth going to see if you are at all curious about about Japanese culture or, um, you, you know, Japan's nationalist attitude to foreigners or immigrants or refugees. Yeah, I think... It yeah, that idea of it being structural, I think, is really interesting. And it reminded me of Ben Shark's Limbo, it, purely in that way, like not tonally at all, um, but in that it's like, well, what the fuck do you do? Like, literally, what do you do? Like, these structures are insane. Um, and what do you do when you're a child and suddenly your family is told, well, they can't work? Like, how do you, how are, are any of you meant to eat? And I just think it was like very good at that. And yeah, I just don't think we have these conversations enough. And I think maybe that is natural that everyone like focuses on the kind of policies and culture of their own, of the place that they live. But I think kind of starting to understand the problem with borders is like a universal thing rather than like particular to places is it feels like it's doing something very important with that. Um, so yeah, I, I loved it. I loved it so much. I also thought it was a really good film. Uh, really emotional as well mm. you're right like the, the 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 character writing so you really get to care about these characters yeah so my small land is on on the 16th and the 20th of august both at the film house on lothian road so go and check it out solid recommendation three out of three so far actually three pretty good films yeah we Lovely. did it we <laughs> did it joe <laughs> okay and finally um for our kind of like main going through of the program is a screening of a film, well, a film whose screening I believe we are actually sponsoring as a magazine. We are. Yes. So we better like it. So, the <laughs> <laughs> well, so just the, the vagaries of uh, the way the program was announced, I hadn't seen the film before I chose this as uh, the film that the skinny was going to sponsor. So, it's with a sigh so of relief what, I watched it and really enjoyed it. So, what, who, <laughs> so who better who better to introduce a film that Not one he had part of this is convincing. No one believe anyone like this. Slapped his sticker on before he saw it. Please, baby, please. Jamie, yeah. what's it? What's it about? What is it? What yeah. is please baby please? Yeah, I should say I do honestly love this film. Yeah, I anyway. think it's great as well, but we'll not spoil that just So yet. yeah, it's one of two films that Amanda Kramer has at the festival. Um so I'm really intrigued to see her other one as well. Um 
uh, give me pity. But this one, it stars uh, Andrea Riseborough and um, Harry Melling as Susie and Arthur, who are this married couple in 90s, 50s New York. And at the start of the film, their world is rocked when they see this gang of thugs called the Young Gents murder another couple outside their apartment. And what rocks them isn't the violence on their doorstep, it's this vision of one of the thugs who is this kind of gorgeous young guy in a leather jacket called Teddy, played by Carl Guzman. And Arthur is instantly besotted, clearly he's turned on by Teddy in some way. And then Suze's reaction is a bit more complicated. Um, so both mef- me- uh, members of this couple um, go through an odyssey basically of self-discovery as they explore and challenge the 50s gender roles, um, Harry having this kind of sexual awakening and Suze exploring her masculine side and so much more. Um, this is a film that's really hard to describe because Amanda Crame herself calls it a fucked up queer upside down West Side Story which is a brilliant description and sounds amazing but it's not even sh- like close to describing how wild, over the top nutty this extravagance is. This um, film is extremely odd Yes, but it's brilliant but it's got it has the strangest, one of the strangest tones of a film that I've watched in a very long time. Yeah it's very much a queer film in terms of its content um, you know it's about a guy um, having a kind of sexual awakening but this woman who's sort of exploring her masculine side but it's also totally queer in its con- uh, its form you know it's like uh, yeah it's, it's all over. so Susan and Arthur they're basically kind of hippie beatniks and they're, they're sort of tied up in these kind of 50s ideas of masculinity and femininity but like I say it's 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 not the film is also uh, you know and it's how they break out then but the film is also about breaking out of conventions you know so it's breaking out of genre conventions because it switches genre constantly it's breaking out of mainstream ideas of style and acting um, you know it's one of the most uninhibited imaginative films I've seen in ages actually where it's kind of referencing 50s movies but at the same time it looks like a Prince video from the 80s but it's also exploring like modern ideas of like like sexual identity and gender politics and things like that. Um, the film it most reminds me of is like Fassbender's Corral, the last film we made. Um, and, and like that, Please Baby Please is super stylized and it, everything feels really artificial. You know, it's it's neon lit, the costumes are kind of over the top, the dialogue is really heightened, the staging and makeup is really theatrical and it's like full of this kind of queer imagery like uh, Fassbender's film but it's uh, she's just referencing so many other things you know it's referencing Kenneth Anger, Amodovar, John Walters, uh, John Waters sorry, um, Tennessee Williams uh, yeah it's just a stew of ideas and it's just really exciting to watch because you don't really know where it's going to go from one transition to the next um, yeah Peter. it just it looks so good and I so the reason I'm quite tired today is I did I was at a music festival over the weekend and ended up doing an 11 hour car journey home from Wiltshire to Edinburgh. And I got in, unpacked some of the bags, sat on the sofa and watched this film. (laughs) And I tell you what, it really does add something because like this is extremely odd in its framing. It's very stagey. There's just smoke, like you say, it's the Prince Sheena Easton. There's just smoke billowing about all over the place. It's all extremely stylized and very kind of dreamlike. And there are these sort of like dream dreamy kind of dance sequences sort of like interlaced throughout it um second outing on the podcast for the phrase grown-up Bugsy Malone because that's that kind of like campy element to it where it's like it's all so kind of it's all at such a specific pitch there's something very kind of like exciting and interesting and completely ridiculous about it I think if I had to sum it up in one phrase it would be that it's a film that has like a real heart and really has something to say about like relationships and gender roles. It says it in a very weird, bizarre accent. It puts on a voice and it's it's so good. And Andrea Riseborough is absolutely brilliant. Just so over the top, massive winged eyeliner, limbs going all over the shop. But again, like a performance that is so almost hammy in parts, but is still really grounded in an actual proper character it's just yeah it's it's so good and i think if you can give yourself some very light sleep deprivation before you go and see it you'll have a cracker <laughs> of a time andrea riseborough was one of my favorite parts i really liked uh, harry melling harry melling i did not expect to do so well in this kind of role but like i think that what you were saying about it like breaking conventions really interested me because 
it really much feels like we are taking contemporary conversations and relocating them to you know, this new historical context of the beat generation where they're like sitting around a record player discussing it, which, you know, definitely did happen, but we don't get films about that really. Films that have such contemporary conversations usually have contemporary settings. So I really like that it becomes this kind of, you know, it's not historically accurate or anything. It's this ridiculous dreamland, but it really just is so expressionist. It's like a, it's like Streetcar Named Desire meets Allen Ginsberg meets Robert Mapplethorpe meets LSD. Like, it's just nuts. Yeah, and I mean, talking about Streetcar, like, Andrea Reisberg plays all the characters. Mm-hmm. She's Blanche, but she's also Stanley. You know, like, she goes through the whole range, and I loved, I loved her performance. Yeah, Melling, I was less taken by. I, I don't know, I, I do think, if anything, he's slightly miscast, I would say. But maybe I'm wrong, but I, I I just feel like I've loved him in other things, especially that Conan Brothers film he was in with the when he's in that kind of chapter with Liam Neeson. But yeah, here I guess that his oddness maybe works in his character because his character is a little bit mm-hmm. oddball, um, and he starts the film sort of yeah he's he's interesting like and in, in that he's sort of rejecting masculinity mm-hmm. from the start, but he's in this kind of like heterosexual relationship, and it seems like he is having a sexual awakening. So he's an interesting character for sure, and I like his uh. I like his, his dancing. He's like he's got a great. So there's a great kind of split scene. Is that the one? Split, split, scene. split screen, mm-hmm. split scene. screen scene. <laughs> yeah, split <laughs> screen scene. Um, where two things are happening at once, and they kind of collide in the middle. Um, which is just my favorite part of the film. Um, really fun. It's also got Demi Moore. I don't think we should mention that. Demi Moore pops up in an amazing cameo where she is this kind of vamp who lives upstairs in this room, which is completely blue. And she has like, and it's surrounded by household appliances, all of which she uses as some sort of sex toy, um, which is fun. Uh, yeah, this film was crazy. I just, I don't know how we can really say this more. Cult, you have to see this to believe it. It's just so much fun. It will be a riot, I think, with a crowd. Yeah, there's an absolutely amazing scene in a jazz club. And again, because it's all kind of like stagey and feels like, it feels a bit like a kind of, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, a bit like a kind of sixth form theatre project that has got new life and a massive budget and loads of film stars in it because like a lot of the sets are quite sparse and a lot of the staging is quite like kind of the staging is quite stagey that's the best I can do right now but <laughs> but there's a scene in a kind of jazz club where there are so many camera pans it's like it is like watching a tennis match on fast forward because someone from behind the drum kit where they're doing the beat poetry the camera will cut to them and then someone will shout and the camera will swing swing back the other way and then a third person will chip in and the camera will swing past the first person to the third person it's just constantly like jumping around in this yeah in this one kind of moment and it's so inventive with little things like that where it really takes what looks like it's one of the these kind of like film festival like comparatively small budget experimental filmmaking pieces of work where it shows you that you don't need there's certain things that you need to make a film really interesting and massive like loads of prop sets aren't one of them you can have some neons and a guy with a really good like really good grip on the on the camera and you'll be all right yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's just cool, you know, like it's cool, it's inventive, but it's also as is, is camp and as over the top it is, I think there is a real kind of emotional heart, which mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. rings true. I think that's why it works. It's, it's, there's no, like the, the whole film is like ironic, but the actual emotions aren't, you know, the, the performances are kind of sincere, even though they're kind of heightened. Um, so that's why it works, I think. Yeah, there's, it's full of non-binary performers who really bring that identity into the, into the film. Um, there's Ryan Simpkins who plays Dickie. That's one of the greasers, mm. um, who's just so great and so back and forth. And all of the greasers really have this fantastic, like wild animal thing going on. But you also have Cola Scola who plays uh, plays the the neighbor that's visiting Demi Moore, uh, and I believe the the sort of stranger on the phone from that one shot yeah. that you see everywhere with the huge hair and the huge eyelashes. And it's like one of the most arresting shots of the entire film, um, who are all just fantastic performers. So it's well worth checking out just for that. Yeah, so he's in drag breaking up on the phone, but then mm-hmm. it becomes like a song and dance yeah. kind of moment. It's like fantastic. And yeah, yeah, I loved all the performances. It's absolutely brilliant. It's so, so good. So. 
Please Baby Please is on on the 18th and 19th of August at the Everyman Cinema at the St. James on the Thursday the 18th and that Film House on Friday afternoon. And that is part of the Powell and Pressburger competition, which is Edinburgh Film Festival's newly like rejigged festival competition, which is now, instead of being a British and international competition, is now one big competition. I think there's about eight, is it eight or ten films in it. I think there's really 11 films. There's 11 films in it. Please Baby Please is one of them. And the rest of that strand you can check out on the Film Festival program. So that's our main recommendations for the Edinburgh Film Festival program. Four out of four. I think we've done it. Lads, crushed it. Good job. <laughs> but before we go, it wouldn't be the Cine Skinny if we didn't recommend slightly more things than anyone could make use of. So, Lewis, <laughs> do you have another couple of things that you would like to very quickly tell people about that they should also go and check out? Um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to uh, a couple documentaries. There's one called A Life on the Farm. It's part of their Night Moves category. Um, and it's about this documentarian who has received videotapes from their grandfather from when they owned a farm. And the videotapes are these bizarre home movies of like skeletons performing songs or having races on the tractors. It just sounds so weird, so bizarre, so out there. Definitely want to go see that. It's on, um, it's A Life on the Farm, uh, Thursday 8th. 18th at half eight at the View Omni or Friday 19th half six at the Film House and it also likes the Electric Malady which is a documentary about the um, about uh, accounts of people with electromagnetic hypersensitivity which is something that is a disputed uh, condition that's being explored by the World Health Organization and they live in seclusion from everything technological shield themselves from rogue radio waves uh, that's on uh, at the Film House on Saturday 13th at quarter past four um, or Thursday 18th, 18th at 20 past eight. Good stuff. Couple of, I mean, I always like to say documentaries at a film festival. I think it's like documentary is, always has, I think it's that thing that like the truth is sometimes stranger than fiction, you know, like they say. Like they say. Like they often title documentary strands <laughs> at film festivals. <laughs> um, Anahit, do you have a couple of quick picks for people? Yeah. So I have Mars One, um, which is a like anthology film that follows like various people um, in Brazil living under Bolsonaro. So it's kind of a very like snapshot of contemporary life um, in Brazil. And it's just like, it looks a little bit like dreamy, but also quite like realist. Um, it's the usual contradictory <laughs> things <laughs> that film critics like to say. Um, and that is on the 14th um, and the 15th, and I don't know where. So that's, oh, The View, View Omni, there we go. Um, and then The Locust, which is a like weird meta film about filmmaking, um, I'm sorry, but it's like Iranian and looks kind of cool and apparently it like did really well at South by Southwest and it just looks sick. And that is on only one day, actually. It's on Tuesday the 16th, and that's at the Film House. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Jamie, do you have a couple of additional picks for everybody? Yes, I'm really looking forward to the new Peter Strickland film. I think I mentioned it uh, last podcast, actually. But yeah, I'll mention it again. Uh, it's called Flots Gourmet. It's uh, a really funny, weird, funky movie, as most uh, Peter Strickland films are. It's about an avant-garde band who make music using vegetables. But it's also about the journalist who's following them, who... Um, is having sort of tummy troubles and it's about the kind of melancholy of having flatulence and how it's really tricky um, <laughs> yeah back. exactly that is what it's about <laughs> it's another Peter one Strickland's back lads <laughs> yeah it's, it's just it's just a Peter Strickland film through and through it's funny kinky a lot of kind of like fetish stuff in there yeah he's a as the programme says he's a very messy boy uh, <laughs> yes he is a very messy boy a good good description um so that is on sunday the 14th of august at film house and then you know catch it on monday 15th of august at the view um i'm also super excited to see um a cat called dom that's a new film from uh, will anderson and easley henderson who have long been you know the shining stars of scotland's short film scene both on their own are great filmmakers when they're together they're even better um they've made some of the best short films in scotland in the last 10 years and yeah, the new film is amazing. It's like a hybrid documentary um, on a really dark subject matter. It's about when Will 
um, Anderson found out his mum had cancer, but it was the only way he thought he could deal with that was making this film and what's come out of it, this kind of really meta, interesting essay film about the art of filmmaking and uh, but also about kind of your loved ones and how you should sort of hold them close. Really funny, really moving, um, really surprising um, in how it's kind of put together. It's almost a little bit of a failure but it's kind of brilliant in the way it fails um, so it's a, really, it's a film it's a very meta film about them making the film basically. Um, really super interesting, I would recommend going and see it stuff um that's on saturday the 13th of august at the cameo and then it's on friday the 19th of august at the film house good stuff and then just a couple from me to take an abrupt tonal shift a couple of big shouty films so special delivery which is in the kind of car thriller genre of things like the transporter and drive but it stars uh, park sodam who is the daughter from parasite um, and I believe that part of the plot synopsis references the fact that she has a cat so we probably get some John Wick thrown in there as well so that is on the 18th and the 19th of August at uh, locations to be announced by me shortly uh, the other <laughs> film the other film that I also want to recommend and I did this last week and I really wanted to review it and we couldn't find a copy of it for love nor money is uh, Saloom which is the Senegalese Congolese combination like western horror cowboy mercenary film which i uh, said sounded like a swedge em up <laughs> where it's basically it's a bunch of guys going around absolutely causing it it's about this uh, group of mercenaries who go to hunt down a drug dealer and it sounds like all of my shit together at once chuck it all in a big bowl and pass it to me it's a good time. Yeah, it sounds great. Do you want to know when the things are on? I would love to know I'm when special so delivery is on so, <laughs> so I can look up Saloon. Let's double so team So special it. delivery is 18th and 19th of August at The View. Um, and then Saloon. And then Saloon is on... Damn you, beat me. Wednesday the 17th of August at The View. And then Friday night at the Cameo. Big room at the Cameo. Half past nine. I am going to try and go. I think I might have double or triple booked myself. It's fine. But I am going to give it my best shot. But I think my dad is coming through there. I might see if he wants to go and see it. Oh, that'd be cute. Yes. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> the lads are on to us. <laughs> and on that note, I think our preview of Edinburgh International Film Festival 2022 is done. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Anahit. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Um, so we will be back in two weeks' time with a very special live episode of the Cine Skinny um, from our home at Codebase. Uh, so we will have that out probably a couple of days earlier than usual, like Tuesday or Wednesday in two weeks' time. But if you want to be there to see whatever this is in person, then it'll be on Monday the 15th of August at Codebase from about half past six. We're going to have some guests. We're going to have some chat. We're going to have some gin. It's going to be lovely. Theskinny.co.uk slash tickets if you want to sign up for that. Thanks to Josh and everyone at Upload once again for all the tech, all the lovely microphones, um, uploadstudios.co.uk for them. If you want to follow us on the various social things, it'll be in the show notes. I'm really hungry. I think Anna so is really hungry. <laughs> Jamie, could you go a snack? I could eat. Lewis? I've already a second eaten, lunch. Yeah. So prepared. I'll come along. <laughs> like, let's let's wrap this up. Let's go. <laughs> let's okay, go. Right, thank you very much. And we'll see you all in two weeks. Bye. 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 Bye.